Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, 12 to 2 p.m. We are waiting for Dr. Samuel L. Blumenfeld to call in, who is an old friend of mine and is a commentator um, for many, many years, a columnist with the World Net Daily and other publications, the author of many books, including The NEA Trojan Horse and American Education, The Whole Language OBE Fraud. Sam, as you might note, specializes in educational topics, and uh, his books, the titles of his books tend to tell the whole story. So check Sam out. Uh, He'll be with us, I hope, shortly. Uh, The program this week is launching, so everything is a little bit new here. Um, I'm actually quite busy today. Uh, My daughter is having her last day of summer, as any parent probably knows. It's a pretty hectic day with some tears and some cheers and some emotions and a lot of running around and trying to get everything just right. She's panicky over having her hair just right. We have to get special combs and, you know, all the nervousness that goes with um, with the upcoming first day of school, which is both a joy and an excitement and also, um, you know, some, uh, some fears and some nervousness. But I'm very proud of my daughter for having made it up to this point. Uh, she's my one and only and, uh, She uh, had an accident this summer, which involved a broken leg, so it's been a very difficult summer. And uh, there's been a lot of um, physical therapy and a lot of care, but uh, she's definitely back, and uh, she took the opportunity to use the time well, I think, in terms of studying and reading and uh, certainly having some fun, you know, looking at some of these YouTubes and videos that kids love to look at and uh, getting some TV in, that's for sure. But yet, nevertheless... Um, you know, I think that she uh, she's used her time wisely. The Democratic National Convention um, began yesterday. I had an opportunity to watch a piece of it, maybe a little bit more than a piece of it. And my estimation is that um, it was not as honest as obviously I would have liked it to be in terms of what the left is all about. Uh, you had some of the same cast of characters in the audience there and on the stage that uh, attended the Wellstone uh, Memorial event in uh, 2003 in which the left's true nature and the true character and the true philosophy of the left was on full display for all to see, and it was ugly. Uh, the, uh, I think that the handlers in Charlotte tried to tone things down a little bit 
and uh, put on a happy face and even uh, present themselves as conservative. And the left can do that. I, I think that the keynote speaker, who was a very elegant young man, he was he is now the mayor of uh, San Antonio. Uh, his name was uh, Julian uh, Castro, Jul- Julian Castro, and his twin brother, who was running for Congress in that same district. They're very, very nice, successful honest politicians, both of them. He made a very nice presentation. But I must say that uh, he reminded me of many of the very liberal people whom I've had on this program over the years in that he put, suddenly put on a new coat. You know, the, the, the leopard changed its spots, in, in a sense, and he became conservative. Uh, you know, in a, I've often noticed that when I interview leftists who – write articles that are radically left. When I get them on the airwaves and I ask them a few very mild questions and they get the drift that I'm not a leftist, they change their, 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 it's like they change who they are overnight. They become conservatives rather than have to confront a uh, oppositional point of view, rather than have to really, it's not so much whether they confront me or some conservative. It has more to do with, I think, the fact that uh, by questioning some of their beliefs, they have to look inside and they have to ask themselves uh, who they really are and what is it that they believe. And they have to defend what they believe on a rational plane and discuss it in real terms. And that's something that they are not prepared to do, not willing to do. So they become conservatives just because anything goes as long as they reach their great goal. And that great goal, of course, is um, to read for them. So the, uh, that, that's what I think happened specifically with regard to the, uh, the keynote speaker last night. And generally, that has been the cloak that has been dropped over the Charlotte Convention. I think that it worked very well for Barack Obama in 2008. He ran actually as a conservative. Many people voted for him because they felt that he was more conservative than John McCain. Um, And I think that his ability to capture the middle and the independent vote was predicated upon his positioning himself as such. And uh, but I don't I'm not sure it's going to work this time around because this time around is a record. And this time around, people know who Barack Obama is at least a little bit more. Um, there's still a great deal of uh, wagons circling around the true identity of Barack Obama, in my opinion. So the public doesn't get the full view. But yet I think enough is known inevitably, simply by virtue of the fact that he's had to conduct his presidency, that people understand that Barack Obama is a left-winger. He's a socialist, in my opinion. Uh, Call it what you will, communist, socialist, whatever you want. He's a collectivist. He's a statist. Um, and I think that in spite of the best efforts of the, um, the Democratic Convention to portray themselves as moderately conservative, I noticed that they threw in a you know, God bless America uh, in, in, into the conversation, even though apparently the Democratic platform is the first major party platform since platforms began to be created for major parties in America which is 1828, 
it's the first time that a platform has not mentioned God at all. God has been vanished from the platform. Now, I know that might make some people on the far left very, very happy. Uh, they can finally, you know, remove what they what I've heard them refer to as the superstition, you know, the Bronze Age uh, superstition of belief in God and belief in the Bible. But I would imagine that the, the 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 people in the know, you know, the more sophisticated operatives who are trying to win an election here, they probably are upset that they missed that one when the platform was drawn up. And I know this was a few weird things put in the Republican platform also, so I suppose we have tit for tat. But nevertheless, God is not mentioned in the platform, and Jerusalem is not mentioned in the platform. Apparently that's too hot an issue for the Democrats to acknowledge Jerusalem as not just only the, the capital of Israel, but even mention it as part of Israel at all. Uh, that is, in my opinion, an absolute disgrace. It is a loathsome position to take. Um, it is true that the U.S. State Department, going back to 1948, decided not to locate the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, and um, we now find out recently that uh, American citizens who are born in Jerusalem are listed as not born in Israel. They're they are listed as born in Jerusalem because apparently the U.S. government, <clears throat> to varying degrees, has not recognized not only Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but they haven't recognized Jerusalem in any way as a part of the state of Israel. And that's a shame. It's a disgrace. Every nation, every sovereign nation on this planet today and in history has had the right to locate their capital city wherever they choose to locate it. And that nations that uh, conduct diplomatic business with that host nation have never felt anything but a normal routine obligation to locate their embassy in that city. It is part of... Uh, it's, I guess you could say it's it's part of international law and custom, and except, of course, for Israel, and that has to do with the fact that in 1948, when Israel declared its sovereignty against the British, the uh, there were some anti-Semites, in my opinion, in the State Department who decided not to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and that policy has been there. It has continued. The Obama... Um, campaign and Obama presidency is correct about that. But nevertheless, um, various uh, administrations who are more pro-Israel in nature, going back to that of Lyndon Johnson, have at least, you know, referred to Jerusalem as part of Israel. And, you know, they've, they've, they've set up a, at least a, a consulate there. And uh, they, they've made moves toward this recognition. Not Obama. Apparently, Obama not only does not recognize Jerusalem as part of Israel, but if you go to the American consulate in Jerusalem, you know, they, they refer to, they actually have Arabic as the, as the official language. Uh, so, you know, I think those things are troubling. They should be troubling to, to both uh, the American Jewish community and to those Americans who are supportive of the state of Israel. It's very undermining uh, for Israel to have this phenomenon. Getting back to the tone of the convention, um, the tone was very controlled, as I've mentioned, in my opinion. 
it was uh, very posturing in terms of appearing to be conservative and appearing to be mainstream, unlike the Wellstone Memorial. And this is a strategy that um, may work for them. It may not. I, you know, I, I hate to think of the American people as so dumb and so gullible that they would believe in this. Um, you know, I, I respect the fact that people want to support Barack Obama because he's a man of the left. I respect the fact that people want to support Barack Obama because he's not, you know, he's a he's a, at least a moderately good president. I, I certainly concede that. But what I hope people don't support Barack Obama for is that they think he's, you know, in the mainstream and that he's, uh, you know, maybe even slightly to the right of center because he is none of those things. And I hope that this sort of hyperbole around the, uh, the convention does not uh, does not wash. Uh, we shall see. It's too soon to tell. Uh, the speeches were all fine, certainly, except for that of um, Deval Patrick, governor of Massachusetts, who is a liar and who's an absolute phony and is a disgrace. Uh, you know, he basically took credit for pretty much the accomplishments of Mitt Romney. He's ridden on those coattails ever since. And yet he had the nerve to attack Mitt Romney, particularly attacking Mitt Romney for being a successful businessman. This coming from Deval Patrick, who has this palatial estate in western Massachusetts, who made his money as a corporate lawyer working for companies like Ameriprise, which is a corrupt uh, mortgage company, and being brought in to Coca-Cola as a diversity expert and given a million bucks to go away. You know, in other words, uh, you know, don't make too much noise about our diversity levels. And uh, here, have, here's a check. You know, <laughs> goodbye. And he's a multi-multi-millionaire as a result of various of these um, involvements in in corporations, and including some of the most corrupt. And he has the nerve to to criticize Mitt Romney, who actually is was in a business where he created things. He wasn't just a lawyer. You know you know, on the on the trough of a company. He ran the company. I mean, Deval Patrick is a shameless individual, in my opinion. He uh, Massachusetts is stuck with him. There, there's no question about that. I think probably the only decent thing that Deval Patrick ever did was agree after he won a second term that he would not run for a third term. I at least credit him for that, because if he had decided to run for, for a third term, he probably could be there. He'd probably be there for life just like Tom Menino. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. You're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like, 347-327-9849. That number, again, is 347-327-9849. What are your impressions with regard to the Democratic National Convention? Please stay tuned.
And we are back. Chuck Moore speaks. Welcome to the program, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Here I am at my catbird seat in Boston, Massachusetts, getting my daughter ready for her public school uh, entrance tomorrow. Uh, thank goodness she's okay and, and, and feeling right and feeling ready. Life is good. You know, if there's one thing that I feel good about in, in this brief lifetime of mine, it's that my beloved daughter is getting a good education in Boston. Thank God. Uh, you know, I really have no complaints about Boston Public Schools, at least not the one that my daughter is at, which is one of the top schools in the country. It's a uh, she's a, it's an exam school. Not to brag, but what the heck, right? Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation. Again, this is Chuck Morse, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. Sam Blumenfeld, I think, is going to be with us any minute. If not, then we've had a misunderstanding, and I'll reschedule Sam. In the second hour today, Brian Kirsch will be with us. He's discussing Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged 2, a new movie out based upon Ayn Rand's seminal novel, Atlas Shrugged, um, and uh, the influence of Ayn Rand on the, um, I don't know, I suppose uh, the, the Republican Party gen uh, generally, uh, Paul Ryan specifically. Um, the um, This is being apparently being viewed by many as a scandal. I'm an admirer of Ayn Rand. It's not that I agree with everything that Ayn Rand is about. I certainly do not. Ayn Rand is, after all, a radical atheist, or was, and uh, she was into some pretty uh, stark social positions on issues. I think on the issue of abortion, Ayn Rand believed that in abortion right up to the moment of birth, you know, it's a, you know, a rather radical position, I would say. So, no, I, I don't subscribe to much of Ayn Rand. But one of the things I think, now that we're on the topic of Ayn Rand, um, that the left does not understand when they criticize Republicans like Paul Ryan for admiring Ayn Rand. And I, again, admire Ayn Rand in many ways. Is that they are superimposing their own political orientation on conservatives, as they often do. You see, liberals, the le or more specifically the left, they, they tend to need to engage in a various level of hero worship. They have cult worship. They personality cults. You know, they build up their leaders as great and glorious so-called progressives. Uh, this is one of the problems, in fact, that Barack Obama is happening right now, which is that his mantle of personality cult has has uh, been pretty battered and has almost disintegrated, which is why they need to resort to other means to promote him. And certainly the cult continues amongst the hardcore believers. Of course, the very hardcore, the inner core, the inner uh, portico, if you will, they know that there's no such thing as a personality cult. They, they're the manipulators who are creating a personality cult. But the personality cult, nevertheless, is something that the left views, the prism in which the left views their leaders and those of influence, whether it be political or cultural. Um, and to that degree, they are superimposing that orientation on conservatives when they consider how conservatives view Ayn Rand. 
Now, conservatives may admire Ayn Rand, and they may admire things that she advocated, and they may admire various aspects of her philosophy, but they're not oriented toward this cult worship. They don't. They, there are also things about Ayn Rand that you will find conservatives vehemently disagree with. In fact, Ayn Rand herself, the very philosophy that she espoused uh, was one in which the individual would uh, would be a would be paramount the, the sovereignty of the individual being the ultimate virtue and that as such the individual would not be expected to follow her or anyone else the individual in Ayn Rand's lexicon is the leader of their own lives of their own destiny of their own family and that the idea of self-determination to the highest degree was the ideal that Ayn Rand held up for the best means of living, the best means of human of the human experience, the ultimate good. Now, Ayn Rand herself apparently did not practice her own beliefs. Uh, I think it's pretty clear if you study the certain elements in the objectivist movement, you, you conclude that she did try to develop a cult around herself. And indeed, she did have people in her immediate circle who tended to follow her like you would follow a cult. And I think that it's safe to say that in that regard, uh, I would suggest that Ayn Rand had various vestiges of Stalinism and left-wingism in her psycho in her own psychology, in her own makeup. You have to realize that Ayn Rand grew up in the Soviet Union. I mean, she was uh, she came of age in Lenin's and Stalin's Russia. Uh, you know, she was a young teenager when the 1917 uh, Bolshevik coup took over Russia, and even though she hated it back then, nevertheless. She grew up in it. She went to a Soviet high school. She went to a Soviet college. I don't think she actually left the Soviet Union until maybe sometime in the mid-1920s. So she imbibed Sovietism in Russia, and she also imbibed, in a sense, Russian authoritarianism because, I mean, the Tsar was not exactly a, you know, a liberal Democrat either. Russia has a long history of authoritarianism in its makeup. And I think that that element of her of her background emerged in her personality and, in fact, became more prominent in her later years. And uh, this was actually pointed out by Whitaker Chambers, the author of Witness, my favorite book, one of the great men of American history, one of the most seminal books. It's, it's something that I urge uh, listeners to, to uh, take in. It should be on the bookshelf with every great American book, uh, right alongside Mark Twain's uh, Huckleberry Finn and uh, The Last of the Mohicans. And you know, this is an American classic, one that's been slightly suppressed over the years. Uh, but Whitaker Chambers, and who himself, by the way, was a communist, and this is a story of how he left communism. Uh, Whitaker Chambers, in a column in the National Review criticized Ayn Rand on these grounds, pointing out that um, what he saw in some of her writings was a Stalinistic view, a highly authoritarian view. So that that is also part of Ayn Rand, and that's the part that I criticized. But nevertheless, 
Ayn Rand is the ideological founder of the libertarian movement in this country. Uh, she uh, did espouse libertarian ideas, which indeed are natural to the American people. And to try to claim that if Paul Ryan has suggested, and he has, that as a college student, uh, he was influenced by Ayn Rand and that he read her novels and read her essays, and that influenced him in his uh, in his avocation in economy and politics, to suggest that, therefore, Paul Ryan agrees with everything that Ayn Rand stood for is wrong. That's not how conservatives think. That's not what conservatism is all about. You see, conservatism is basically, when you get down to it, it is what is natural. Conservatism is what is natural to the human being. It is living the good life. It doesn't need to follow anyone. It is not based upon an ideology. It's based upon human nature, the free market. <clears throat> the free market is what we do when we are free. You know, we, we basically create things. We create goods. We create services. We create art. We create music. We create whatever it is we create. And we then trade those things with other people. We offer them to, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, so, it's part of our natural need to socialize with others, uh, you know, in terms of transactions. We, we offer them as a service. We hold them up and we market them and we say, I'd like to present this in the public. And then other people, we see if other people want it. And if they do want it, then there is a transaction. Money is nothing more than an abstract means of effecting a transaction because we cannot possibly have a barter society. Uh, you know, we all have barter as part of society, always has been. Certainly in the radio business, we have barter. But it can only account for a very tiny fraction of the transactions that we conduct every day. So what we have in a free market is the freedom to create something and then to trade it with others who want it. That is the natural way of being. That is natural to the human being. Um, you know, we could take a look at any endeavor under the sun, and if you took a conservative approach to it, then you would say that this is the science of, de of devising what is best for man, what is the most freeing doctrine, what is the doctrine that actually creates the most liberty. And uh, that's what conservatism is all about. Uh, you know, the idea of having a fixed moral code given by God, that is a conservative idea, because what that does is it creates certain fixed ideas that cannot be manipulated, cannot be tampered with, cannot be uh, lied about, cannot be distorted or, by other people who have self-interest in controlling others. Therefore, once that... Once that uh, I guess you say that, that that revealed truth, that Decalogue, is revealed or is accepted as part of a religion, then within that context, man can then measure his own life and man can be free. It doesn't have to be Judaism or Christianity or it, it could be Islam, it could be Buddhism. All the mainstream religions today have developed systems in which uh, their adherents 
are receivers of divine truths, and then they can measure their own lives based upon those truths. And they are truths. They are truths not just because someone says that God gave them and because they're divine, but they're also truths because they have been tried and they have been uh, experimented with and they have been honed and they've been developed over many, many millennia. You know, there's a reason why uh, the ministry of Jesus, for example, survives after 2,000 years and thrives. There's a reason why the covenant between Moses and God at Sinai has survived and thrives. There's a reason why the teachings of Mohammed have survived and thrive. You know, these teachings were organizing with the organization of revealed truths, I would contend. And uh, while they are all very different, they have certain basic universal themes that keep them in common. And that those universal themes are such that they are freeing of the individual and that they run completely contrary to the unnatural beliefs of the left, which try to which need force to impose themselves on people. <clears throat> it is natural, it is normal for individuals to engage in free trade, which is why we have governments that protect free trade to a high degree, so that we can thrive and that we can advance our own interests. Self-interest is natural. Self-interest is good. These are the things that were railed against by the, the so-called progressives, starting with Karl Marx, who talked about abolishing these trends, who claimed that these trends were manufactured by people who wanted to exploit others as they exploited freedom. These trends have proven to be natural, and the idea of enforcing uh, an ideology on others is unnatural. Getting back to the issue of Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, I think, for the most part, embraced these natural concepts as being true. And one of those concepts, of course, is the ability of the individual to measure their own lives against them and to adhere to them or not adhere to them at free, as a matter of free will, when the assumption is that if they do not adhere to those things which uh, – result in the good life, respect for property, another issue that's natural, by denying others their right to property through stealing, or, or other examples, then ultimately that individual will uh, receive their just desserts. They will be punished, if not in this lifetime, then in the next. Um, and so, in a sense, the left imposes a view on the Ayn Randers or, or those who follow them in a manner that is not actually accurate with regard to how conservatives view the world, which is that the individual does not worship cult leaders in, in that sense. The individual adheres to what they believe is best for themselves and for their families and uh, incorporates ideas that they uh, they may accept or not accept as being valid for them. So we're going to be talking in the next hour with uh, Brian Kirsch, who uh, is here to discuss or who will be here to discuss uh, Ayn Rand's uh, novel made into a movie, that being Atlas Shrugged Part 2. Um, I haven't seen Atlas Shrugged Part 1, but I read the novel many years ago, 
And to uh, wrap things up for this hour, uh, since Sam did not make it this hour, I think that we'll have Sam back soon um, in uh, in future programs. Um, I think that the Democratic National Convention uh, attempted to uh, to package itself as slightly conservative, but I don't think that it worked. I hope it didn't work. Uh, they are not conservatives. Uh, they are very much people on the left, which is fine. Let them be who they are. Come on out. Be who you are. Let the public decide. And I think that in the long run and in the greater picture, they did reveal themselves as being people who believe in the left with such sentiments as, uh, you know, we are all, you know, in this together. We're all here to help each other. You know, these kind of banal statements, which are obviously true, are brought up specifically because what they're really saying in code language, in dog whistles, if you will, is that we believe in collectivism. We believe in giving up, and or, or as they use the word, sacrificing our individual uh, rights, our individual lives, uh, putting ourselves first for the good of others. They're holding that up as an ideal. The Republicans absolutely you know, take the opposite position. I think that the Democratic National Convention, one of the things they kept repeating was Republicans say we, that you, you should go it alone, and I think that's true. Republicans do believe that the individual should have sovereignty to the highest degree possible over their own life. Under the assumption, an assumption that, of course, the left leaves out, that people do socialize with each other. You do develop networks of people around you who you work with and who help you and you help them. That's natural to the human condition. You don't need the government there to sort of enforce that and make that happen. And I hope that people see that. The other thing I noticed was that there was a lot of worshiping of government. There was a lot of praising of government employees. Um, I Look, I admire policemen and firemen, and I admire government employees who are good. Look, my wife's a government employee. It's not a matter of that. But you didn't hear them talk much about uh, people who are, in fact, making it on their own, people who did build that, <laughs> like the Republicans said. Instead, you heard a great deal of glorification of people who are deriving their income and who are employed by taxpayers. Not much about the actual taxpayers they are not mentioned mainly because I think everyone, I hope, understands that if Barack Obama is reelected, this country is going to experience the largest tax increase in the history of, of America, which means the largest tax increase, well, I wouldn't say in the history of the world. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 there were bigger tax increases in Nazi Socialist Germany and in Soviet Communist Russia. Those tax increases were the complete confiscation of all property but on, in an American context if Barack Obama is elected uh, as of January 1st of next year this country is going to experience the largest tax increase in history there's going to be a tax increase when the Bush tax cuts expire and don't believe that that's a tax only on the rich because the fact is that almost 50% of Americans now pay no taxes um, those taxes are going to be paid for by everyone who pays taxes, middle class and rich. And the fact is that the middle class is more likely to be stuck with that tax because the rich, they're in a position where they can avoid the tax 
simply by hiring fancy accountants who restructure their their wealth. Either that, either that or they send it overseas. So it's going to be the largest tax increase in history. Obamacare has several taxes in it that are going to kick in on January 1st. Those taxes are going to affect small businesses. Those taxes are going to affect retail companies, companies that are already dealing with a recession, companies that are already nervous about expanding their stock because they don't know if the consumer is going to uh, do as much uh, buying in the, in the future. These companies are going to get hit with this tax, and they're going to further contract. That's going to lead to a, a further slowdown in what is the slowest recovery in history. You know, Obama and his people have the nerve to talk about um, the recovery. And, that yeah, the, the economy has recovered slightly, but it's been a very tepid recovery, and it could have been a very vigorous recovery if we had had the right leaders in office. It's that simple. We did not have the right leaders in office. Our leadership basically further expanded the debt by $4 trillion. They left in place onerous regulation on business. They further um, you know, added more bureaucracy to the government by getting through Obamacare, which is the first step toward the complete seizure of an entire American industry, that being the healthcare industry. And um, as a result, they did nothing to help further uh, innovation, you know, investment, creativity, and all the things that happen when you let people alone, when you let businesses alone to do that which they do best, business. So, yes, there's been a slight economic recovery. That's uh, absolutely true because this is America, and we have great people here who want to do business. But the economy and the recovery could have been so much better and could be so much better if we have leaders that understand that, first of all, by leading, they are going to step out of the way and let the economy develop on its own. Let the business class do what it does best, be in business, not rail against business as being involved in some kind of a conspiracy because it's successful, which is what the people on the left do. Instead, state their admiration for business. Mitt Romney, if he's elected, the first thing he's going to do, I predict, is he's going to have a meeting at the White House with America's business leaders, the people who are successful, and he's going to ask them, what can we do in the White House to make it easier for you to expand? What can we do to encourage you to invest in the United States, to keep your capital here and not bring it overseas? What can we do to help the consumer have more confidence when it comes to buying goods and services? I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're not going to raise taxes for one thing. And another thing is they're going to get rid of onerous regulation. Now, do I know what Mitt Romney will do? Of course not. And maybe he may not do these things. But we do know that Barack Obama definitely would not do these things. And we know that with Mitt Romney, at least we have a hope that he will, because Mitt Romney, if there's one thing you can say about Mitt Romney, 
putting aside the fact that he's flip-flopped on just about every issue, that is that Mitt Romney wants to be successful in the real sense, not in the left-wing sense, which is to turn the country over to a new world order and to create uh, equity around the world. Mitt Romney wants to be successful in America. He wants the American people and the American economy to be more successful because that's what he focuses on. He has a record of doing that. He has a record of being involved in various things over his career where he has made them successful. So that's the one thing you can say about Mitt Romney. At least we have that in terms of knowing that um, we've got a running start with a Romney presidency. And I think already Romney has surrounded himself with some good people who do understand how to create success. And that includes vice presidential nominee Paul Ryan, who I was so thrilled when Mitt Romney picked him, I almost fainted. And people like um, like John Bolton in the foreign uh, desk, uh, you know, who understands that you don't stick it to Israel at a time when Iran is building nuclear uh, missiles, uh, you know, and other same such, uh, uh, you, you know, policies. I mean, I think that John Bolton understands uh, the nature of what's going on in the world. Anyway, we shall return in hour number two. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. You can check out my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks, or a Whig Manifesto. Put either in your server, and up it comes. And the program broadcasts Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. I am just beginning to roll this thing out. I don't even have a computer functioning right now, so I can't do as much as I'd like. But believe me, the program is rolling out, and uh, we're all going to have a great time. So please stay tuned for hour number two. You can call in at 347-327-9849.
Chuckwa Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Welcome to the program. You're welcome to join us, 347-327-9849, as we welcome aboard our affiliate station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Come on down, 347-327-9849. Brian Kirsch will be with us shortly, hopefully. Brian is with the Pinkston Group. They are working on promoting the new film, Atlas Shrugged 2, which, of course, is based upon the second series of Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. Um, I want to talk with Brian a little bit about not only the movie, but um, Ayn Rand and um, her influence on the Republican Party. Uh, we'll be introducing Brian right at the um, after the uh, first break here. Uh, let's see. The news, we've got... Uh, Barack Obama, it says no stadium. Democrats will move Obama's big speech from 74,000-seater outdoor stadium to a smaller indoor arena, citing bad weather. But was it really because they couldn't fill it? I I thought that last night the the auditorium was pretty full. I don't know if that's true. You know, obviously there's there's not enthusiasm. And by the way, this is from the London Daily Mail, so I don't know what they know. But uh, it says here... Crucial speech will now be held in 20,000-seater Time Warner indoor area. Organizers blame bad weather forecasts with some question whether he could fill a huge outdoor stadium. Forecast is now for 40% chance of rain and possible thunderstorms. Campaign aides had just days ago said he'd appear come rain or shine. Hey, look, I thought that they had some pretty good showing uh, yesterday at the uh, Democratic National Convention. I'll give them that. Um, even with the schmaltzy Ted Kennedy uh, nostalgia sort of stuff, I mean that—that's, I guess, what they're all about. Tonight, the I think the big speaker is going to be Elizabeth Warren, who stands for everything that I personally loathe. I think that she is the worst uh, example of, of someone that they could have out there. But. Um, that's who they got, Elizabeth Warren. She's already snookered uh, Obama once by having his campaign lift her comments here in in Massachusetts, where she's running for the U.S. Senate at a House party, where she talked about, you didn't build that. You didn't do that. We should worship the government. The government's doing all that for you. They are the ones who get the credit. You know, I mean, of course, it misses the whole point, which is that the government's money is our money. I mean, you, you, know, it's, you know, the government doesn't have money. The taxpayers have money. But putting that aside, I think that those comments backfired on Obama, and yet they're going to bring her out. Oh, she is the she is the typical liberal, you know, elitist, corrupt hack who basically got ahead by lying about, you know, her background, saying to Harvard that she had, was a Native American, knowing full well that her, even if she were, to the degree she claims, that doesn't qualify her as a Native American, 132nd Native American, to the degree that she could get tenure. And yet that's what she let Harvard know. And then when she lied about it to the Boston Herald, Harvard stepped in and said, sorry, this is what you told us. And then she had to back down and admit that she'd lied. I don't think Elizabeth Warren ever thought that she'd be called on that because I think she travels in these rarefied circles where everybody just kind of winks at each other, and they all just sort of think the same way, and she never thought she'd be questioned about that. And Harvard, of course, was fooled into 
accepting this because they got credit for diversity. You know, she's listed in several national publications as a woman of color. Yet, ironically, in many of her other job applications, she lists herself as white. So talk about hypocrites. Talk about somebody who made money with a contract from Travelers Insurance, who hired her as a way to try to screw their claimants who are seeking help with their asbestos cancer. You know, I mean, talk about, you know, she, she has the nerve to talk about big corporations when she was brought in as a fixer for a health insurance company so that they could screw their, their members. Check this out. I got a column about it up on my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks. Check out how she flipped properties while she was living in Oklahoma while complaining about these practices now as a consumer advocate. You know, typical liberal. She's okay for her to make a few bucks on the side. And then she complains about Mitt Romney's wealth. You want to talk about the difference between making wealth the old-fashioned way, that is earning it and creating things, versus the greedy way, which is screwing people and claiming something else while you're taking the money on the side. Take a look at Elizabeth Warren. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be back, introduce uh, my guest. And you, the caller, you're welcome to join us, 347-327-9849. That number, again, is Chuck Moore Speaks. Um, welcome to the program. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, and of course our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and our Blog Talk Radio partners, as well as Stitchers. You can listen to this program now on your cell phone by downloading a free app, that being Stitchers. Uh, let me welcome aboard Brian Kirsch. He's with the Pinkston Group. Brian, how are you? Are you there, Brian? Do I have uh, this right? Uh, Chuck. Yes. Chuck, Sam? can you hear me? Yeah, this yes, is Sam. Sam. Hi, Sam. I'm sorry about that. I think that um, we might have had a confusion in the time, Sam. I thought that you were coming on at noon, but here you are. Thank you. Oh, at noon. You wanted me at noon. I thought at 1 o'clock. Oh, I'm well, sorry. Well, no, that's quite all right, Sam. I'm glad you're here. Um, all right. It gave me a chance to vent my thoughts in the first hour on uh, on the issue of the convention. Of course, my guest right now is Dr. Samuel L. Blumenfeld. Sam is the uh, author of The NEA, Trojan Horse in American Education, The Whole Language, OBE Fraud, and other excellent books. Sam's titles tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. Sam, how are you? Fine, fine, and of course I've been following the uh, conventions as you have, mm-hmm. and I would say, I would, you know, if you look at the faces at the two conventions, you would find that the Republican convention is mainly made up of people who pay taxes, and the Democratic <laughs> convention is made up of people 
who uh, live off of the taxes of others. You know, they I are think the that's recipients. accurate. Yeah. Well, because they're mainly, you know, the people on the uh, who work for the government. They're unionized, heavily unionized, and uh, most of their money comes from the government and union dues. So uh, you can see the the difference between the two groups, and I, uh, you know, uh, and of course the com- the country is divided, but uh, it's so obvious when you look at uh, when you listen to the speakers, and I'm sure you listen to most of the speakers uh, at the Republican convention, and you listen to the speakers at the Democratic convention. All they are doing, at the, uh, all the Democrats are doing, is just, ex, you know, is just extolling government. You know how wonderful government is, and how much good it's doing to everybody. So I think that's pretty yeah. clear. Americans will have quite a, a very clear choice. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Sam. I think that they are going to have a very clear choice. I think that the, the Democratic convention toned down some of its true nature by actually pose, trying to pose from time to time as almost conservative, and that's something that worked somewhat well for Barack Obama in 2008. You had people who voted for Barack Obama who were conservatives because they thought that Barack Obama was more conservative than John McCain, and uh, he was able to pull that off, but I don't think he's going to pull it off this time. I think he now has a record of four years, which are very, a very liberal left record. Um, and uh, you're quite right to point out that the Democratic Convention was filled with public employees. Now, this is, the, um, there, this is one of the three things that are going to defeat Barack Obama. The first one, I think, is the price of hamburger. You know, I mean, remember, remember yes. former, remember, remember former price, governor... Uh, yeah, and also the price of gas. <laughs> well, that's what I mean, Sam. Remember remember Governor Frank Sargent? Yes. Well, Frank Sargent was one of these sort of well-liked liberal Republicans who lost his election in 1975 as a shocker uh, to a young upstart representative by the name of Michael Dukakis. Nobody expected that. And when he was asked why he thought he had lost by a reporter – Sargent said it was the price of hamburger. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think so that was, right. yeah, and that's this is what this is the number one issue that's going the American people are going to look at when they vote this November. When they're voting and they're driving to the polls in a gas in a tank that costs five bucks a gallon. And the, by the way, the price of hamburger is going up. Oh, and they yeah. take a look at the cost of food and they take a look at the cost of services, and they they wonder. You know, does this have anything to do with the Obama administration and their inflation of the dollar, which it does? They're going to vote undecidedly for the other guy just because they want to have some kind of a, hopefully, a more conservative approach to uh, to the economy, so that the dollar can at least retain uh, some of its value. Yeah. And, but the second issue is the cult of personality. Obama had this cult around him the last time. Women were fainting. People were swooning. That's gone. People are not. I mean, even even among the hardcore in the Democratic convention, I don't know if you noticed it, but I found that there was a, that there was a lot of problems with people getting their energy levels up. They were not responding to. They they were not that excited. Yeah, I, I saw that also. I saw that also. And of course, 
some of the speakers, for example, the mayor of uh, Newark San Antonio. tried to, uh, yeah, he tried to um, uh, rev up the crowd, but um, it didn't work very well. It didn't work. No, very there's well no because... there's no enthusiasm this time. I mean, they, they they just changed the venue for the for his speech to a smaller room because they're afraid they can't fill the auditorium. I mean, he's not no. getting. There's no longer, you know, the left always has a cult around their leaders. I, I yeah. sure know. And the, the Obama cult has somewhat disintegrated. The third factor, and I think there are three, and this is the one you bring up, and I call it the, uh, the Scott Walker factor. Scott Walker, the left tried to get rid of Scott Walker in Wisconsin because Scott Walker went after the public sector. He went after the public unions. He went after their big, fat, you know, pension plans and their, their monopoly control over insurance in their state and their, the, 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 the enormous cost that that was incurring on, on the municipalities and, and the bankruptcy that it was bringing and the raising in taxes to maintain it. Scott Walker went after that because he was elected to go after it, and the reaction was an overreaction on the part of the left who swarmed into the state with all the unions and the money and everything else to try to basically overthrow him and it failed. Scott Walker was, was elected in the, in the recall with a higher percentage than he had in the first election. And I think that, 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 that phenomena, that, that dynamic, is going to repeat itself around the country. Just as you say, people are sick and tired of the enormous concentration of power in the hands of these public sector institutions, particularly the unions. And, yeah, uh, and yeah, and as you know, FDR was against the unionization of public employees. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was really—I think it was brought in by Kennedy, unfortunately. And as much as I admired John F. Kennedy, yeah, uh, it was the whole Kennedy, idea. JFK. That's right, and the whole idea of a public union is a terrible corruption. There should be no public unions. They don't need to have collective bargaining. Uh, Scott Walker is absolutely right. These are good jobs. We want to pay these people well, and you know, especially when it comes to teachers, the good ones should be paid better, and the bad ones should be. We should get rid of them. Exactly, the and that's that, one of yeah. that's one of the reasons why public education has gone down the drain is because of unionization. That these teachers really cannot teach the way that they should teach, but they're you know they're held accountable to the union leaders, and you know the famous statement that uh, Al Shanker said. He said, "We will we will represent the uh, children when they begin paying union dues." <laughs> That's right, and they 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 represent their own members, and you know the whole idea, by the way, of union dues going to political campaigns, yeah, especially when those unions are public unions, it's corrupt. It what is. you have it's then corrupt. is the unions forcibly taking money out of the pockets of teachers. And then using that money to pay politicians, to buy politicians locally who are going to do their bidding. I mean, it's a, you know, if this is something that, that there have been reforms that go back to the days of Rutherford B. Hayes when, and, and, and uh, Grant, when Grant dealt with some of this kind of corruption, to, to reform the public sector, to create a public service that, uh, that would not be involved in politics. They're not supposed to be involved in politics. Exactly. They're not supposed to be, you know, giving money. Now, as individuals, they can give money to a politician, but they have union dues, which are forcibly extracted, turned over, not by the workers, not by the teachers themselves, but by a couple of union hacks who are in control 
and who make these decisions. You want to talk about corruption. I mean, I think that uh, the people of Wisconsin saw this. I mean, and and I'll give you an example of what happened in Wisconsin. Apparently, the the public unions were able to negotiate through through, um, collective bargaining a monopoly control over all of the health care benefits of all public employees in the state, communities, cities, towns, municipalities. All of the insurance had to be bought through their company, a company that was controlled by the public unions, and they were charging exorbitant fees. And when Scott Walker got rid of that, suddenly you had communities saving many millions of dollars because they could buy insurance from their own from whichever health insurance company they wanted to, and the union company had to lower their rates because they couldn't. Uh, yeah, but what, not only that, but half the number of teachers uh, left the union. <laughs> oh, I know it. And, and, they, and not only that, but when they left, they got a raise because they didn't have to pay dues. That's you know, right. This is, yeah, I mean, you know, this whole idea of a of like a right to work. I mean, I, you know that I'm, I support the right to work committee, but yeah. the the idea of a closed shop state. You know, it's not necessary. You know, unions should have to compete for membership just like anyone else. And, you know, I'd point to, for example, Germany is a company, is a nation that has a very good union system in that uh, there's no forcible membership in the unions. The unions are not allowed to be involved in politics by law. And the unions are not allowed to ask for increases in benefits unless the company shows that they've had an increase in profits. Yeah. They can't, in other words, they cannot, you know, outdo the company. And the result has been that in Germany, the unions work closely with the companies to make better profits and make better products. Right. They're not, they don't have an adversarial relationship. They have a, they're kind of working together. They're part of the company. And that union members in Germany are more conservative. It's not a left thing. It's more of a right thing because they're in business. They recognize yeah. that they have a self-interest in helping their company do well. And, uh, and of course, uh, unionism in the private sector has been declining for years, and it's only in the public sector that the unions see they can, you know, expand. And there's an interesting new book out called Shadow Bosses, which is about the unionization of uh, public employees. uh, I heard the author, he was on one of the uh, C-SPAN stations talking about the incredible corruption of these unions and the power they have over the government and how they're, you know, how they're bankrupting uh, us. One of the reasons why we have this enormous debt, federal debt, is because of how much money is owed to the unions. You know, that's part of it, not all of it, but certainly part of it. But I like what you said about Elizabeth Warren because she she is is the the worst. worst of the worst, you know. And the fact that she's going to be the main speaker at the convention, what is that? They're making tell? a big mistake. They're making a big mistake by by getting in bed with Elizabeth Warren. She's Absolutely. already messed up. She's already. I mean, do you know that Obama lifted that whole rant that he was on with the "You didn't build that" from Elizabeth yeah. Warren? He I got mean, it she. From her? Yeah. She. <laughs> I, and not only that, but she bragged about it. She said that stuff at a house party up in North Andover. You didn't build that. We built that. We, the government, we're responsible for this. We're responsible for that. And Obama just lifted it from her. And, 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 and uh, you know, so he's they, – they're making a mistake by getting involved with her. She is poison. 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, she's and she's a, she's an absolute shipwreck in Massachusetts. She's down yeah. in the polls by five, and and it's not because people think Scott Brown is such a nice guy either. That's not what it is. It's it's that she's just one of. I mean, e- even in Massachusetts, people can see through a phony. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and and of course, this business that she's part Cherokee. I mean, what a laugh oh. that turned out to be. Well, you know, Sam, the, the absolute irony, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren ever thought that she'd be questioned about that. But the fact is that she let it be known at Harvard that she was part Cherokee and when they were considering professors for tenure. And she was given tenure. Now, she's a mediocre professor at best when you take yeah. a look at how these things work and published works. And uh, and then when uh, someone at the Boston Herald asked her about that, she she lied. She said, "Oh no no, I know nothing about this. Harvard made this up." And so then, so then Harvard got their back up, and they they stepped forward and said, "Sorry, Elizabeth, you know we're not going to you know we might love you and all, but we're not going to let you lie about us. You did say it." And so she had to retract that, and it was the front page in the Boston Globe. That she had lied oh, yes. about that. That yes, indeed, she did tell Harvard that she was a minority. And uh, you know, I don't think that she ever thought that anybody would notice this because she travels in circles where people just, you know, they kind of nod at each other. You know, oh yes, isn't it wonderful? And and yet, uh, ironically, at other applications she's had for college work, she's put white. So mm-hmm. I mean, this is just you know, it, it, it's it's an embarrassment to to the to the whole diversity movement that yes. you have somebody taking advantage. And also she has the Cherokee Nation angry. The the head of the Cherokee Nation was interviewed and said, This is we hate this. This is a these are people who are taking advantage of um you know, claiming to have our background when in fact they don't and that they've denied uh, opportunities to those of us who are who are Cherokees. And well, she refuses you, you... to talk to them. You know, you wonder how far back she has to go to find that she's one thirty-two percent. You know, I mean, yeah, and even, you know, what kind of that that requires an, an incredible amount of digging among your ancestors to find out who is that person who was, uh, you know, the charity that was got into yeah. the family, family blood or whatever. Well, and you know, Sam, another you know, very, yeah, please, another please, very interesting, another very interesting thing that has happened since. Obama became president is the publication of so many books that have revealed his true background. Yes. I mean, you know, like like the amateur, uh, which really rakes him over the coals. And then this new book about uh, his real father. This guy yes. suspects that it's uh, his real father was the communist, uh, his mentor. That's right, and, David. Yeah, and and all this business about his socialist past and the fact that Bill Ayers helped him write his book, you know. Uh, Never the, mind helped the, him. I think he ghostwrote it. He ghostwrote exactly. And speaking of his book. Right, the, and it's uh, been it, documented. Well, this guy Moranis, who wrote this mo- recent biography of Barack Obama, he's yeah. a liberal, kind of a well-liked you know, guy who also wrote a biography of Jimmy Carter and I think he wrote one of uh, of Bill Clinton. I mean, he's he's one of these sort of establishment types. And exactly. he says, and he says in his I, book that, uh, I, that I, Barack Obama lied about most of what's in his autobiography. I mean, his past is all these sort of, you know, it's all it, it's all lies. 
Yeah. And and as a matter of fact, I looked up in the index of, of this biography you just referred to, and Ayers is not even mentioned. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not a good even one. listed in the index, which shows how how clean it is, you know, that it's a, a censored version. Well, you know, yeah. Sam, you and I both read World Nut Daily, so we know a lot of things about Obama that that are trickling out there that are pretty unsavory. And, you know, I, I don't even know if I, I want to go there. You know, I, well, I, I know, you know. I know we, uh, but, uh, but the point about the Republican convention is that they did not touch that at all. They That's avoided right. all of that stuff about Obama. They didn't even call him a socialist. I think I heard the word socialism mentioned once. And it was in, in the middle of somebody's speech. Uh, but they did not take it to task for the, the very fact, for example, that he hasn't revealed his um, his school records, you know, because... That's right, that's right. And, you know, look, Sam, I, I think that the Republicans are going on the high road, at, at least yeah, at this yeah. point. But um, I think that hopefully, look, I think Obama, I think that Romney is ahead and... What I'd say is that there was an internal poll done by, of all people, um, what's his name? You know, the bald guy who used to work for Clinton? Um, I'm trying to think of his name. Um, he's married to the conservative woman. From, he's oh, from, uh, oh yeah, yeah, I know who you mean. You yeah, know who uh, I mean. He's from, from yeah, New Orleans. Yeah, 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 he, yeah. he did a, did a poll with uh, Greenberg, who was Clinton's main pollster. These, both of these guys are liberals of independent voters and they found that Mitt Romney was ahead by 15 among liberal among independent voters. Yeah. Now that's that's not the kind of poll that we see that's not the sort of those are inside polls. Those are polls that uh, that president the president looks at. You know, those aren't like the general mainstream polls. And and I but, think that tells you that Obama is in big trouble. I mean, it's very difficult to beat an incumbent. But uh, my hope is that um that Mitt Romney can do this without getting into all of the kind of the nasty elements of Obama's past. You know, let well, that of, be course, uh, of course, there are also going to be the debates, which is going to right. be interesting. I think they will they will show the contrast between these two men very clearly, much better than the uh, than the two conventions. I think that's what's going to be telling are the debates. And anyway. You know, people were on vacation during August and the Labor Day, and they're not paying all that much attention to politics. But they will right. in the fall as the uh, as Election Day, you know, uh, approaches. Absolutely, and I think that as Election Day rolls around, and they see that Mitt Romney is not this evil monster that the left tries to make him into, people are going to go for it. But Sam, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. We'll do it again soon. I'd like to have you back on next week. I want to do this regularly. Your next and Wednesday. That's fine. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm and, looking forward uh, to uh, it. You want me to call at noon rather than one? Uh, well, we, uh, yeah, I mean, noon would be a better time, yes. All right. Because okay. I have more time to stretch out. Anyway, Sam Blumenfeld, I want to thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. My and, pleasure. Uh, all right. We shall be back after these brief messages. Please stay tuned.
And yes, indeed, we are back. Chuck Morse speaks. You're welcome to join the program. 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. You can email me at number 4 at gmail.com. We're joined by Brian Kirsch from the Pinkston Group. Brian, how are you? Actually, it's Harmon Gaslow with Atlas Shrugged. Harmon Gaslow from Atlas Shrugged. Okay, thank you. I think I got go. I mixed you up with your publicist there. That's okay. That's okay. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Now, you are the producer of Atlas Shrugged Part 2, is that it? Exactly. Uh, you know, Atlas Shrugged's a, uh, a book published 50-plus years ago, and uh, my partner and I, John Agliloro, have uh, produced a – well, we're producing a series of movies based on the book, and we are going to be in theaters on October 12th with Part 2. Now, let me, I, I, you know, to be honest, I did not see Part 1. I am a fan of Ayn Rand's. I read her novel. I have trouble imagining how a novel as complex as Atlas Shrugged could be translated into a, a visual movie. Can you talk a little bit about how you made this movie? Well, yeah. But, but first off, just you know, in case some of your listeners are not familiar with Atlas Shrugged, you know, it's a story that teaches us, you know, the virtues of loving our life, uh, not sacrificing our values, and respecting, you know, the rights of an individual against a you know, socialist form of government. Uh, it, it, it was written really as a warning um, about what happens to America when capitalism you know, becomes a dirty word, you know, when government power you know, escalates, individual liberty is attacked, and um, th- this spirit of sort of collectivism begins to grow. And you know, instead of encouraging people who are the lifeblood of our country, government bureaucrats create these laws that really stymie their achievement, you know, in the delusion that, you know, equality is somehow achieved by bringing the top down. And it's really a dramatization of the timeless, you know, philosophic truths about human nature, um, including the role of reason in human life, the role of the government and the citizen, and our interest in, you know, political and economic freedom. And the story is told through, you know, a cast of characters, um, the 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 true hero uh, that that you know of our story is a woman, Dagny Taggart. Uh, she's smart, attractive, tenacious, hardworking, and um, involved in her family business, trying to keep it survive while the country uh, slides into economic um, disparity. And um, you know the people that she relies on, the other innovators and producers in society, you know, begin to disappear. They they literally you know have had enough with the government, um, you know, treating them as if they're the bad guys, as if uh, you know the, the the golden egg that they're uh, right. laying for society in the form of jobs, economic prosperity the payment of taxes on their income is simply not enough. And uh, they they begin to give up, and you begin to see what happens to society when these productive people leave. And uh, you're absolutely correct. It's quite a challenge to take a story of that magnitude and convert it into, you know, a compelling, um, you know, 90-minute to two-hour motion picture. 
So, you know, this 1,200-page book itself is structured into three parts. And, uh, you know, we, we did do the first part of the book. It was in theaters on tax day in 2011. And uh, you know, when we decided to greenlight part two earlier this year, uh, we decided that, that we were going to make it as a standalone movie. So even though you haven't seen part two, uh, you're fortunate because you're familiar with the book. But for those people in your audience who aren't familiar with the book, you'll completely understand what's going on. You'll be able to know the good guys and the bad guys. And we'll begin to you know, tell the story uh, as it's told in the book about uh, you know, what's going on in society and, and the role that government is deciding to play in trying to you know help uh society you know regain its economic footing what you really see is that uh, it's of absolutely no help at all and uh, a lot of people really think that that uh, you know this book is prophetic you know in the sense that a lot of the things that uh, Ayn Rand wrote about are seeming to happen right now before our very eyes and uh yeah, you know, I I just think it's 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 just making people aware and appreciate um, a how lucky we are to you know live in this constitutional republic and that what begins to happen when the government begins to take away our individual liberty and begins to take on a bigger role in our lives. You know, Harmon, the uh, Ayn Rand's novel has been a huge seller from the moment it was published back in 1958, 59, right up till today. It is a big book on college campuses. It, it's been it's one of those transformative books. I know that my wife and I spent the summer reading it, and it was had a huge impact on us. And um, I think that recently it has been attacked by the left, of course, who is the of course the enemy of the book. What would we expect? And that uh, the idea that people who follow Ayn Rand is that there's something evil about this. And it's been particularly hung around the neck of um, vice presidential nominee Paul Ryan, who has said that he was influenced by Ayn Rand as a college student. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, is that uh, is that bringing Ayn Rand back to a greater prominence, or is it a situation where people are getting the wrong impression? Well, I mean, I think that um, yeah, number one. You know, as you point out, you know the book has sold millions and millions of copies over its 50 years, and and remains an active, you know, print today. And not everybody um, that reads the book um, takes out of it its political message. A lot of people look at it and and find that its story. Uh, regarding economics and free markets um, and, and a limited government, individual responsibility, those sorts of things, uh, they, they find to be quite inspiring. And so I think, um, you know, I think it's unfair to, you know, you know what, what the media perhaps is doing is characterizing the book as, as you know, a political book for you know the the right or or the left for that matter so um mm -hmm. you know it's important that you know i think that we're fortunate that we've got you know in the dna of paul ryan an understanding of the message and themes of atlas shrugged i think that that's great um his position on on you know the other beliefs 
that the author has, you know, are, are personal to him. And I think that that you know there is there are a lot of people that have read the book who uh, may not necessarily subscribe to 100% of what the author, uh, you know, and, and her right. personal beliefs are. And so, um, but 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 ultimately, I think that the the people that are um, expressing fear about the book are, are people who are part of this ever-growing substantial percentage of the population that uh, directly or indirectly rely on the government um, and, and that they really have a fear that yeah. uh, people are going to Washington with a new attitude. And these are the people who are saying, you know what, you got to go read Atlas Shrugged. Um, yeah, and, and are afraid that that new attitude may actually make them accountable for having to do something other than uh, relying on the government to send them a check or you know provide them with a job. You know, I also think that the other factor is that um, we, you know, the left is superimposing its own authoritarian outlook on people who admire Ayn Rand. You know, people who admire Ayn Rand, people like Paul Ryan, like myself, like you. We don't agree with everything about Ayn Rand. We're not followers of her in the sense of like a cult worship, which is typical of the left. They seem to need to have these cult leaders. That's what Barack Obama's appeal was in 2008. And uh, people just don't see Ayn Rand like that. I mean, in fact, Ayn Rand herself was against that, even if she might have had that around her own personal life. That's another subject. But the point is that the whole idea that's espoused in Atlas Shrugged and in her work is that the individual doesn't follow other people. The individual is determinant of their own destiny, of their own lives. Carmen? There we go. Thanks. Yep. For some reason, I got I got lost there. Okay, here uh, we are. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, I missed uh, a a portion of the point that you were making. Well, what I'm saying is that the left is superimposing its own authoritarian views on those who admire Ayn Rand. The yeah, exactly. Don't, they're not followers. In, they're not looking to Ayn Rand as a cult leader to uh, you know agree with everything she says, like the left does with their own leaders. They admire aspects of her and disagree with other aspects, and that Ayn Rand herself was against that kind of cult following. Exactly. She believed, you know, she stood for the individual determining their own destiny and that of their own families without uh, without cult leaders, without the government. I mean, that was part of her ethos, even if she personally wasn't always a, uh, didn't always follow it in her own life and some of her people around her. That's beside the point. The yeah, thing no, is and, that, and, yeah. and, you know, what's interesting is, and, and I think people will see this um, when they go to the theaters on the 12th and watch Atlas Shrugged, is that, you know, there really are moments in there that I think people that are criticizing the book will say, you know what, I, I actually agree with what I just, you know, saw this particular hero in the story do. You know, for example, um, you know, the, the the government uh, really goes on a witch hunt for uh, the productive people in society who are um, still trading with one another. And uh, one of the heroes of the story, Hank Reardon, is you know appearing before you know this court that's been established um, to, to uh, impose the the law and regulation on him. It really stands up and shows the courage to say what a lot of people are afraid to say, 
and it's very reminiscent of you know perhaps you know what occurred during the McCarthy uh, era, where where people you know who who had the courage to say things that they believed in, all of a sudden the government on a witch hunt you know makes them a criminal. And if you think about what side of the political spectrum you know, would have supported the people having the courage, you go, you know, it, it, it is interesting. And, and I think that um, the big fear is, you know, the economic side uh, that, that comes through the message. People really have to be accountable. It really doesn't work when the government uh, becomes, you know, the caretaker. Um, our, our communities, if given the resources, will be benevolent. And will help one another. We really don't need, you know, the government to take on that role. Um, but but that's uh, you know that's not a position that's uh, universally shared. No, and I think that the uh, contrast is um, quite apparent now with the difference between the Democratic convention and the Republican convention, uh, in that the Democrats seem to be extolling this idea of sacrifice and of. Uh, common good and of doing uh, you know that everything isn't about your yourself and your own wealth it's about doing stuff for other people which is a euphemism for the government of course right yeah, there's also you know it was funny i heard a clip played uh, with uh, president clinton speaking about fair share people got to pay their fair share the wealthy have to pay their fair share uh, those sorts of things those the, the words fair share actually appear in atlas shrugged and in fact, appear in the movie when the government enacts what they call the fair share law. Right. Okay. And and what ends up happening, and it happens over and over. And you think that we would be smart enough to recognize, you know, when when you know we've made these mistakes in in the past, but that that doesn't make any sort of correction at all. And there's been a number of you know Republican presidents that have done things. That are very counter to the, uh, the the economic message that's embodied in Atlas Shrugged. So, um, I, I, I'm like you. I think that the book has really a universal appeal, um, and, and the opportunity that I think making the book into a movie presents is that you know on the 12th of October, people will have a chance to go to the theater and be in an environment with like-minded people, not necessarily people who all have the same you know political affiliation but like-minded people who you know believe in free markets who believe in individual liberty who believe that the government should have a limited role in our lives and and hopefully that interaction will cause them to say you know what we can't let this election slip by us in November we have to make a difference our country really is heading to fall off a cliff unless we stop doing what we're doing now. And if we don't think we're in that situation with $14 trillion of debt, just go ask or look at what's happened in Greece. That's right. And I think that the timing of the release of this movie is quite prescient. It's coming out just two or three weeks before the election. Uh, it will have a huge national impact. Uh, is it going to? Be, what, how many theaters will it be opening in? Harvard? Well, we're going to be opening nationwide. We should be in in uh, anywhere from uh, six to seven hundred theaters on our opening weekend. So it should be 
easy for people to find us. We have a really active website, atlasshruggedmovie.com, where you'll see a little movie ticket. If you click on it, you can check to see if the uh, movie has been booked into your town yet. Mm-hmm. If not, we have a demand atlas uh, function. You know, we, we've also you know have a very active community of several hundred thousand people who have subscribed and who are uh, planning events. Um, you know, be, because there just you know isn't that many opportunities like, like I said earlier for sort of like-minded people to gather. And and what you've really seen now in this country with uh, with 2016 is that you know the theaters now know that there is an audience for message movies, and this is That's a message right. movie. And yeah, it's a huge, uh, huge hit. Yeah, yep. and, and and people will show up at a message movie, and so. We're really excited about uh, you know when when we'll be in theaters. The, the movie looks great. Uh, our trailer is actually going to uh, be starting to play in theaters on Friday. But if people want to see a peek of it now, it's on our um, it'll be up on our website at 6 p.m. East, uh, Pacific time at atlasshrugmovie.com. And I think it'll give people a real good indication not only of what the story is about, but also you know, the production value and, and the decisions we've made in uh, executing the story. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. My guest is Harmon Gasho, Atlas Shrugged Part 2. You're welcome to join us, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347 347- Three two seven nine eight four nine. Stay tuned, please. Essentially, became nearly free for us. 
you, you spend a dollar a month powering your car, five dollars right. a month powering your home. Think of how much freedom you would have, either to work harder and save money, or consume more, or be able to relax more, or just how much more productive society would be. And yet, this is a huge theme that runs through. Uh, Atlas Shrugged becomes very apparent in part three when they go to uh, to Galt's Gulch and you see how these productive people that have gone on strike and how they're living and able to live such a fulfilling life. And in large part, it's because they're not prisoners to the high cost of energy. And so uh, whether or not Mitt Romney knows about it, the the fact that, again, this is a theme um, that, that really – yeah, will be part of the administration if if uh, the Romney team is elected. I think gives us some hope because it, it is really you know the, how much we are prisoners today to the high cost of energy. And, and I think that our our emailer was making a snide swipe at. Of course Romney's she was, but I'm not. You know, I got and, and, I got to talk and, about my movie. And I know that. I know that, Harmon. But the thing is that that's ludicrous because first of all, Mitt Romney's father was in the car business. He was the Chairman of American Motors, and Mitt Romney's a, very into cars, and, and, and to bring up the fact that he's too rich to understand the impact of gas, it's uh, that's ludicrous. I mean, you know, would you say that about John Kerry, who, who inherited his second wife's first husband's trust fund, and who's the richest man in the history of the U.S. Congress, worth a billion dollars? I mean, would people say if he were the candidate, as he was in 2004, that he would not be able to relate to high prices? Yeah, it's just one of these swipes. It gets into this false stereotype of conservatives when, in fact, the top 1% in America is predominantly on the left. Uh, I think that Bill Romney does understand business. He understands that it's not just the cost of gas going into your car, but the cost of gas uh, going into uh, trucks that transport goods and services, goods across the country, and that that raises the cost of everything for Americans. And he he realizes, you know, he's into uh, reducing the cost. I mean, it's something to do with him personally. Uh, you know, he wants to, in a sense, well, if he his wants economic prosperity, right? He knows yeah. exactly where to put his energy and focus. If he can get us to again not be prisoners to the high cost of energy, the productivity and prosperity of this country will be unmatched. Yeah, the other thing is that Mitt Romney is somebody who actually made his money the old-fashioned way. He earned it. He didn't inherit it. His inheritance actually went to charity, uh, and that he didn't uh, marry it like uh, like John Kerry. I know people say that uh, Paul Ryan's wife is rich. That's an exaggeration. She's worth a million dollars. You know, it's not like uh, he's loaded. And uh, he basically created something from nothing. That's what uh, I think we need, you know. I mean, he wants to succeed in his own endeavors, and he wants to succeed as president. He understands what makes what's going to make uh, create what's going to create uh, economy. He understands it's a reflection on the uh, on freedom that that you have to let business do what it does and step out of the way. And I heard a lot of comments last night about uh, Republicans saying you have to make it on your own in a very derisive. Um, context. I say yes, they do. You do have to make it on your own. That's not that uh, Republicans aren't going to support a genuine safety net that actually helps people who, as Reagan said, are truly needy. 
It means that they're not going to allow hacks to jump on the payroll around the country and, and suck off the public teeth. You know, I mean, and, right. you know, they, not to get uh, hyperbolic here, but, you know, it, it, it's much more of an actual uh, you know, context which really does help people who are truly needy, not helping this huge bureaucracy where you have 100 million people who are in public assistance in this country. Exactly, but but I think it's you know hopefully it's a little bit more than that, which is to understand that the entrepreneurs of this country really are the ones that are building this country. That you build it off of their economic prosperity, which is tax and goes to the government. Um, it's built off of you know they're creating jobs and opportunities for people who either can. Uh, you know, create good livings for themselves or begin to see other opportunities that emanate from those particular businesses. You look, you know, at a company like Apple Computer, uh, and you and you see a guy like Steve Jobs, and you would go, you know, Steve Jobs just seems like one of the heroes that would be part of, you know, Atlas Shrugged, which is, you, you know, a guy who is driven by his vision. He's no different than Henry Reardon, who... You know, uh, and the story comes up with this, you know, incredible metal called Reardon Metal um, that creates jobs. Um, yeah, obviously, he as he that. becomes wealthy, he <laughs> pays taxes on that. Um, whether or not he wants to give his money to charity or not should be a personal decision for him. Um, but the fact that he is employing people and giving people an opportunity to work and receive uh, compensation for doing that work is far more rewarding than those same people just getting a handout and doing nothing. I think so, and I think that since the 60s, the country has gradually moved into the direction of paying people for not working. I don't think that people – I don't blame people for taking the money so much. I blame the government for offering the money, for, for basically buying people. Well, right, and, and so that goes to the issue of, of political power, and you know, in a sense, people in in governance doing things to preserve their position, in a sense, buying votes. Exactly, um, and if you take a look, it doesn't at make sense is, economically to do that. No, and also, I mean, echoing my first guest, Sam Blumenfeld, if you take a look at most of the people who are attending the Democratic convention, they're people who are on the public payroll. Or they're in unions who are allied with the people who are on the public payroll, as opposed to private uh, entrepreneurs and business people, the people who are creators of wealth, as opposed to those who are consumers of wealth. And again, this isn't against government employees. I mean, my wife's a government employee. This is to do with the expansion of of government responsibilities into areas where it, it shouldn't be, where it didn't need to be, and, uh, and, and what these employees are doing, which is ministering over our freedoms. Yeah, you know? no, and, and sort of, you know, almost strangulation by regulation. And, and again, that's that that theme begins to uh, actually show itself about midway through part 2 where the government is uh, really strangling business to a point where business is unable to make a decision and what you see in the story is a result of the removing of that responsibility from from business and the government taking over you know a, a phenomenal disaster an enormous loss of life you know occurs 
in this story because uh, of of the government just simply over-regulating to a point where people who are who are in positions to take responsibility and make decisions are afraid to do so at the risk of violating a law. Exactly, and, and while Atlas Shrugged is a fictional account, it is something that can happen. It has happened in history. We could take a look at what happened in the Soviet Union in 1918. We could take a look at what happened in National Socialist Germany in 1944, 1945. I mean, when government basically starts confiscating everything in sight and completely centralizes power, you end up with enormous suffering and death and disease and and, uh, and complete loss of freedom. So not that that would happen in this country, but yet at the same time, freedom doesn't grow on trees. Freedom has to be exercised. It has to be understood. It has to be preserved. And I think that there is this stark difference in this election in that you have one party that is going to, if they're elected, enact the largest tax increase in history in the United States, certainly not in the world, but in the United States, versus another party which is going to leave more capital in the hands of those who create capital. Where right. they can invest it, where they can, right. you know, spend it. They can buy a, a roof deck or something and, and employ people. Whatever they do, the fact is that the basic premise underlying the philosophy there is that we trust ourselves to govern ourselves. We trust the American people. We don't have to have a paradigm where that power that is transferred to a nanny state. Right. Anyways, um, Harmon Gashow, I want to thank you so much for joining me this yep. afternoon. It's, the movie uh, opens what day? Yeah, it's, it opens across the country on October 12, 2012. Uh, it's important, people, to get out, support the movie, learn about what's going on with respect to the movie, atlasshrugmovie.com, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash atlasshrugmovie. Hope to talk to you uh, before it premieres again. Please check out the trailer and let people know what you think. Let's do it again before the movie opens. I Absolutely. Thank, thank you again. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very thank much. You. you bet. Okay, you're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. And, of course, the program airs Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I emanate from Boston, Massachusetts, the home of the brave, the Atlas of America, the, uh, the Atlas, the Athens of America, the shining city on a hill, the hub of the universe. Uh, stay tuned tonight for the Democrat convention. You've got Elizabeth Warren. What a spectacle uh, speaking. Um, and lots of sob stories, I'm sure, there. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at the usual time. Check out my blog site, which is a wig manifesto at blogspot.com. Just put Chuck Moore Speaks into your server and it comes up with all my articles. I'm looking forward to tomorrow's program already, and I shall be there at the usual time. Noon Eastern Standard. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Cyber Station USA Radio Network. This is Chuck Moore Speak. Have a good afternoon, everybody.